Last week I <clears throat> began a, a first part of a couple of talks on uh, loving-kindness metta. And I spoke last week about the cultivation of this beautiful mind state, both for its own sake, as a wholesome and good thing to cultivate in the mind and heart, and also as a powerful support for the practice of liberation and as a real source of strength and courage for us as we walk this path. And I spoke uh, in some detail about what are called the near and far enemies of metta, uh, these strongly conditioned forces that function to obscure or sometimes push this quality of love out of the heart. So tonight I'd like to continue with the discussion of the practice of loving-kindness. Uh, and in part tonight I want to go through the metta sutta itself and look at the words. Uh, and there's some good stuff in there for us. This, the metta sutta, which uh, some of us chant together a few nights a week, it's uh, probably one of the very most beloved discourses of the Buddha, uh, chanted probably at least as frequently as, as any, probably more than most suttas. Andy Olinsky has a, been doing a series of uh, postings on his website and analysis, uh, trans, new translation and analysis of the Metta Sutta, and he describes it this way in that he says, he describes it as a jewel sparkling softly but compellingly through the centuries. And I really see this, uh, the Metta Sutta in this way. It's a beautiful piece of poetry, if nothing else. And I mentioned this earlier today in the, in the chanting uh, period, but sometimes when I chant this, I reflect on the fact that that people have been chanting it this since the time of the Buddha, somewhere every day since then, in all likelihood. And so there's this connection to this stream over the centuries when we look at this and bring these words to mind. But before uh, looking at, at the words of the, the teaching itself, I thought I'd tell uh, the history, the story of the occasion when this sutta was delivered. It's a charming story in its way, and it points to uh, the fact that the metta sutta is considered to be one of the paritta chants. It's included in the group of blessing protection chants called parittas. And there's a number of uh, different chants in this grouping. Uh, the bojanga sutta is one. The Bojanga Paritta, I should say, and uh, that's the, the uh, Paritta chant that has to do with the seven factors of awakening, and it's used uh, with, uh, in times of illness and disease to help uh, with that. Uh, there are other Parittas that are used for, uh, well, the Angulimala Paritta, for example, Angulimala having been a serial killer at the time of the Buddha who got converted and became fully enlightened. Uh, but there's a paritta that has to do with him that's supposed to ease women in childbirth. Um, 
I won't go into the story of that, but it's kind of an interesting one. And there's ones to protect against snakes and crawly, bitey beasts and that kind of thing. So the occasion of the Metta Sutta happened when there was a, a group, it's said to be 500 monks, that's usually used to mean a lot in these stories, who were uh, given meditation practices individually, each one according to their temperament. Uh, by the Buddha, he had this ability and genius to give people the exact right practice. And then they were, they were sent to find a suitable place to spend the rainy season, the vasa, the rains retreat period, which is during the, the monsoon time in that part of the world. And at that time, the monks and nuns would stay determined to stay just in one place and not wander about for the 12 weeks, uh, beginning with the full moon in July, usually. And so they, w- they found a place, uh, they went to the foothills of the Himalayas, it said, and found a, a forested area with large mature trees and uh, fresh springs of good water for bathing and drinking. And there was a village close by enough that they could go for alms food there. And it said that the villagers were, were happy to have them and even offered to help them build small huts at the edge of the forest to dwell in for the rainy period. So they went and settled in there. And as is customary, each one of them chose a tree to practice under for the days abiding. Practicing at the foot of trees is, is an old custom. And uh, so they were meditating there. And it said that these trees formed the foundations for the, the celestial homes of tree devas that were living in this old, beautiful forest. And so the devas didn't want to uh, hover above these meditating bhikkhus uh, out of respect. They, they stood aside with their families, thinking it might just be for a day or two. But then the monks uh, lingered on and on, and the devas got uh, upset at this because it felt like an occupying army had come in and taken over. So they decided to scare the monks away by uh, creating scary visions and, and awful sounds and terrible smells. And it said that the monks became pale and were unable to concentrate and soon lost even their basic mindfulness. And their brains became smothered by these frightening visions and tragic smells in the forest. So as is often the case, they ran back to the Buddha to ask his advice. And he uh, taught them, delivered the metta sutta at that time and taught them, taught that to them in the practice and recommended that they return uh, practicing metta and chanting the metta sutta, which they did. And the devas were pleased and decided to let them stay and not to hassle them anymore and uh, to keep the forest especially peaceful for them. And as is often the case with these stories, all 500 of them were fully enlightened by the end of the rains period. So, um, yes, very good fortune for those bhikkhus. So the sutta itself is uh, organized in verse form uh, like a poem 
but it also has a threefold structure in a sense um, that we can find in there that in a way follows the basic structure of the Buddha's teaching that we find in the Eightfold Path of trainings in sila, samadhi, and panya, and uh, moral conduct, ethical conduct, uh, concentration, and bhavana, mind development, and wisdom. And Joseph has been talking about this a lot in uh, recent last his last couple of talks, at least in his uh, series on the Buddha's first discourse. And I'll just reiterate a couple of points about that, uh, starting with this first section of the sutta, which uh, speaks a lot about ethical conduct, sila, and uh, points to the fact that this is seen as a a real foundation, essential foundation that our practice rests upon. And and the Buddha taught that there will be no real development for us if this is not well-established in us. And this is emphasized throughout the teachings in many, many places. So I'm using tonight a translation. It's a little different from the one that uh, is on the sheet that uh, we're chanting. Uh, It's one that Andy Olinsky has done. It's not quite maybe as poetic, but uh, it's a little more literal, but it captures some, a few points that I think are quite uh, important and good. And uh, Andy's a a great Pali scholar, so I trust his translation quite a lot. So the first verse in that one, he translates this way. This is what's done by one skilled in what's good, who reaches towards that most peaceful state. Such one would be capable and straight, quite straight, well-spoken, gentle, without too much pride. Then the next verse, content with little and easily maintained, not doing too much and lightly engaged, thoughtful with a peaceful demeanor and modest, without greed among worldly things. One would not do even the slightest thing that others who are wise would speak against. So this first verse especially really emphasizes one's conduct capable, straight, it says here. I would think of that as being uh, uh, very uh, clear in in terms of one's conduct. Well-spoken, gentle, without too much pride. And I think sometimes we tend to, we tend to skip over sila a little bit at times. We we think we can tend to think that it's something we, we get in place. You know, we take the precepts when we come to the meditation center, keep them in our lives, perhaps as much as we can. And then we want to feel that, well, okay, that's there, and, and then let's move on to the real thing, to the meditative practices. But sila really does merit our ongoing attention and this is being, it's being continually refined on more and more subtle levels as our practice unfolds. And there are a couple of teachings from the Anguttara Nikaya that I want to mention tonight that show how, how uh, ethical conduct, virtuous conduct, functions as, 
as a foundation, an essential foundation for our practice. And in the first of these, the Buddha is replying to Ananda, who has asked this question, what, Lord, is the benefit of virtuous ways of conduct? What is their reward? And I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I'm going to read the Buddha's uh, the summary of the Buddha's reply, how he, how he ends this, because it contains the whole thing. He says then, Hence, Ananda, virtuous ways of conduct have non-remorse as their benefit and reward. Non-remorse has gladness as its benefit and reward. Gladness has joy as its benefit and reward. Joy has serenity as its benefit and reward. Serenity has happiness as its benefit and reward. Happiness has concentration as its benefit and reward. Concentration has knowledge and vision of things as they really are as its benefit and reward. Knowledge and vision of things as they really are has disenchantment and dispassion as its benefit and reward. Disenchantment and dispassion have the knowledge and vision of liberation as their benefit and reward. In this way, Ananda, virtuous ways of conduct lead step by step to the highest. And then in the next, the following uh, sutta in that collection, the Buddha goes on and explains how there's a lawful way that this process unfolds. And so he goes through the same list in this way. He says, for one who is virtuous and endowed with virtue, there is no need for an act of will. May non-remorse arise in me. It is a natural law because that non-remorse will arise in one who is virtuous. For one who is free of remorse, there is no need for an act of will. May gladness arise in me. It is a natural law because that gladness will arise in one who is free of remorse. And he goes this way in the same way through the, the stages, the same list as I read through in the first teaching. And he ends this in this way for the final one. He says, for one who experiences disenchantment and dispassion, there is no need for an act of will. May knowledge and vision of liberation arise in me. It is a natural law for one who experiences disenchantment and dispassion to realize the knowledge of liberation. Thus, because the preceding qualities flow into the succeeding qualities, and the succeeding qualities bring the preceding qualities to perfection for going forth from the near to the far shore. And these teachings point so beautifully and directing directly to the, the way that the practice naturally unfolds. And there's a very organic way that this happens, that the practice opens and unfolds in this way. And the Buddha calls this a natural law. It's like the law of nature, or the law of cause and effect. Because of this, then this. So again, emphasizing virtue, ethical conduct as this fundamental foundation that the whole practice rests on. Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a lovely book called For a Future to be Possible. It's a, an in, a discussion of the five precepts. 
He says in that, he says the five precepts are love itself. He calls them the five wonderful precepts. He says the five wonderful precepts are love itself. To love is to understand, protect, and bring well-being to the object of our love. The practice of the precepts accomplishes this. We protect ourselves and we protect one another. This is a, an interesting and I think beautiful way to hold the, the precepts, seeing them as a manifestation of love itself. One way that I think of thought about this, reflecting on this, is that it, if we have a commitment to non-harming and to living with as much care and mindfulness as possible, then this leads to one of the greatest gifts of all. One of the greatest gifts we can offer is the gift of fearlessness. that people don't have to fear us. They know we would not harm them. And this to me is a, is a very clear act of love, of generosity and love and care to give this gift of fearlessness to the world. And this first part of the sutta also points to the life of simplicity and renunciation, especially uh, that was practiced by the Buddha and the monks and nuns and still followed by monks and nuns today, in the, especially in the Theravada tradition that I know more about. This verse that says, content with little and easily maintained, not doing too much, lightly engaged, thoughtful with a peaceful demeanor and modest without greed among worldly things. And there's a lesson for all of us in, in this this encouragement towards greater simplicity in our lives and towards care and mindfulness regarding how we live in the world. And the way we live really bears attention. For example, how we, how we use resources and attention to how much we use and how much we really need. You know, as a species, we're a voracious species, we humans. We want, we want everything and we want the best stuff. And there's not a whole lot left over for others, at, other beings at times. And some of the systems, the economic systems that are, are based on continual growth as though somehow that could ultimately ever be sustainable. You know, and we live this way and all this, at the same time we're fouling the air and the water, turning the landscape into a desert in places. And we wouldn't tolerate it if some other species was doing this. You know, if squirrels were doing it, we'd rub them out as a pest. You know, but we somehow exempt ourselves from, we allow bad behavior on our own parts in a way that we never would. And seldom do we really ask ourselves, what do I need right now in this moment in order to be happy, to be contented, to feel complete? It's easy to see all that we lack at times. But often if we take a look, we'll see that we don't really need that much. And that a simple life brings its own blessing, its own kind of happiness and contentment. So the second 
part of the metta sutta is the samadhi part, the concentration, the bhavana section, you could say. And part of this really describes the metta practice and the qualities that are expressed and developed when we cultivate the heart of loving kindness. I'll read through some of this section. Starts, may they be secure and profoundly well. May all beings be happy in themselves. Whatever living beings exist without exception, whether weak or strong, whether tall and large, middle-sized or short, whether very subtle or very gross, whether visible or invisible, dwelling far away and not far away, whether born or not yet born, may all beings be happy in themselves. And I love this, the inclusive nature of this practice and it's throughout this sutta, this including every possible kind of being. Sometimes it can be a little bit humorous, the translation, another place it says, long, huge, or middle-sized, short, minute, or bulky. <laughs> Let us not exclude the bulky and huge ones. <laughs> And visible and invisible ones. So it expands our, our view to include things that are not so obvious to us. And even those who aren't born are included. And there's one line that occurs twice in the sutta and kind of brackets this section that I think of as the practice section. In Pali, it's sabe sata bhavantu sukitata. Often it's translated as may all beings be happy or may all beings be at ease. But I like the way Andy Olinsky has translated it saying, may all beings be happy in themselves. And he says this about that line. This line adds the nuance that the attitude of loving kindness is entirely selfless insofar as the emphasis is upon wanting the other person to feel happiness the wish that the other person feel happiness themselves, in themselves, not only in a way that might meet my approval or that serves my ends, but as a pure act of benevolence towards the other. So this emphasis on this generosity of heart that wishes others to be happy just as they are, in themselves, this act of pure benevolence, as Andy says, that really points to the essence of loving kindness, this simple generosity of heart that wishes well to ourselves and to others and doesn't ask for anything, doesn't put conditions on that, doesn't seek any kind of self-benefit or demand that others be a certain way. The next few verses shift a little bit away from what I think of as, as the metta practice towards a bit of a commentary on the practice in some ways, pointing to some of the attitudes of mind that are important when we practice metta. And within this section, there's this beautiful image of a mother caring for her child and much more and more on this unbounded nature, the sending metta out in all directions without holding back in any way. So I'll read some of those phrases. Let no one work to undo another. Let no one think badly of anyone. 
either with anger or with violent thoughts, one would not wish suffering on others. Just as a mother would watch over her child, her one and only child with her life, in just the same way, develop a mind unbounded towards all living creatures. Develop a mind of loving kindness, unbounded toward the entire world, above and below and all the way around, with no holding back, no loathing and no enemy. Standing, walking, sitting or lying down, as long as one is devoid of torpor, one would resolve upon this mindfulness. This is known as sublime abiding here and now. I like this translation of the last line in this section, which points to the loving kindness as one of the Brahma Viharas, the sublime or divine abidings. Saying this is known as sublime abiding here and now. And pointing to the immediacy of the practice in this way. In any moment when our mind and our heart is suffused with love, with friendliness and care for ourselves, for others, it truly is a divine abiding in that moment. We're connected at ease. There's a feeling of completion right in that moment. And then the third part of the sutta, the panya wisdom section, points to the transcendent and liberating possibility of this practice. And the reference in in this section is to the fully accomplished one, the arahant, one who has developed the path to its fullest and completely uprooted the, the kilesas, the defilements of mind, the unwholesome roots. And this is in the final verse of the, the sutta, and it has a very different tone from the rest of it. A real shift away from the metta practice and a move, move towards wisdom and understanding, towards liberating insight and the heart's complete and final release. Goes like this. Without falling into mistaken views, endowed with insight and integrity, guiding away greed for sensual things, such a one would not be born again into this world. So there's a description here of some of the qualities of liberating wisdom. The first of these, the ability to not fall into fixed or misguided mistaken views that obscure the truth of how things really are. And the Buddha taught that views are limited fabrications that are born of, of perception and thought, and they may or may not reflect the truth of things, the truth of the way things really are. And often views can do more to obscure the truth or confuse us than to help us see with clarity and understanding. And Joseph spoke so eloquently the other night about right and wrong view. And so I don't want to go into it too much now. But there is a beautiful, simple teaching. Again, this is from the Anguttara Nikaya that 
speaks very directly and succinctly to this, this quality of right view. It says, it is impossible, O bhikkhus, and it cannot be that a person possessed of right view should regard any formation as permanent. But it is possible for an uninstructed worldling to regard a formation as permanent. It is impossible, O bhikkhus, and it cannot be that a person possessed of right view should regard any formation as a source of happiness. But it is possible for an uninstructed worldling to regard a formation as a source of happiness. It is impossible, O bhikkhus, and it cannot be that a person possessed of right view should regard any formation as a self. But it is possible for an uninstructed worldling to regard a formation of sel- as a self. This pointing to these three universal characteristics. And Joseph spoke at great length about this understanding, all that arises is subject to passing away as being such a fundamental key element of right view, really seeing this in the deepest way. So in this last verse, such a one, one who is not fallen into mistaken wrong views is endowed with insight and integrity So this one whose wisdom is fully developed. And so the integrity of one who's no longer capable of transgressions in in terms of their conduct, because these unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion have been uprooted, they're no longer arising in the mind stream. And there's a natural refinement in our conduct that happens as an organic result of deepening wisdom and understanding. And we find ourselves less and less capable of performing actions that cause harm. Our attention to our actions and the results of them to the law of kama becomes more and more refined. And there's this famous quotation from Padmasambhava Guru Rinpoche I know you've heard before, but it bears repeating here. He said, though my view is as vast as the sky, my attention to the law of karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. This is a natural result of the deepening of wisdom. That we, our attention to our actions and the fruits of our actions becomes more and more refined. And the next line in this section describes the complete overcoming, overcoming and abandonment of greed. It says, oh, such a one is freed from all sense desires, free from the power of craving, this fundamental cause of suffering that keeps us bound to the wheel of samsara, to these cycles of endless wandering. And then the final line of the sutta is not born again into this world, pointing to this final release from rounds of birth and rebirth. And I think it's really, it's fitting that the sutta ends in this way. 
you know, touches on this, this thrust of the Buddha's teaching that is always there. He only and always was pointing to this as the culmination of the path, this liberating insight and wisdom. This is what he always was teaching, suffering, the end of suffering. And so in this way, metta practice is seen as a support for this deepest possible realization. Some would regard it as a path to this in and of itself. Traditionally, it's said that there are 11 benefits that come to one who develops metta. And these are listed in the Visuddhimagga. I'm going to go through at least some of them if I'm not sure how much time. We'll see how it goes. The first three of them deal with sleeping and waking and dreaming. It says one sleeps in comfort and does not turn over and over and one's falling asleep, one falls asleep as though entering an attainment. Sounds good. It says, one wakes in comfort, instead of waking uncomfortably, groaning and yawning and turning over as other do, others do, one wakes in comfort without contortions, like a lotus opening. Anybody waking up like that? <laughs> yeah and said one has no bad or evil dreams. One has only auspicious dreams as though making an offering, worshiping at a shrine or hearing the Dhamma. As we develop this heart of goodwill, of loving kindness, we develop a life with an ever deepening commitment to non-harming and to loving care. And as this practice deepens, our lives tend to become more simple and clear and this brings more and more freedom from fear and worry. And this could easily, and I think naturally, extend into our sleeping and dreaming and waking. The next two, it's one is dear to both human and non-human beings. I think this points to the fact that the kind of energy that we extend into the world tends to draw back to it the same kind of energy And so if we extend metta, metta is more likely to return to us. And if we develop a heart of love and kindness and care, people tend to feel more and more that they can trust us and they know that we won't harm them, that we have their best interests at heart, their welfare in mind. And we can become a real beacon of light for people, you know, a safe haven And this way, one can become dear to humans. And there's a very sweet story in, in the, the list of these blessings that talks about how one becomes dear to non-human beings. I think I'll, I'll go through it quickly. It's, it's a nice story. It's the story of the elder Visaka. It's said that he left home to pursue the Dhamma and traveled to Ceylon, Sri Lanka, where it was said that the conditions were favorable. He'd heard that one can sit or lie wherever one likes. The climate is favorable. The abodes are favorable. The people are favorable. The Dhamma to be heard is favorable. 
and all these favorable things are easily obtained there. I think it may be kind of like the forest refuge. So he became a monk and after he had practiced for five years, he set out to wander by stages to a monastery at a place called Chitalapabhata. And after he had been there practicing for four months, he lay down at night with the thought, in the morning I shall depart. And then a deva who was living in a manila tree at the end of the walk came and sat on the step of one of the steps of the stairs and was sitting there weeping. And Visaka hears this and he said, who is that? It is I, Maniliya, venerable sir. Why are you weeping? Because you are going away. What good does my living here do you? Because as long as you live here, non-human beings will treat each other kindly. Now when you are gone, they will start quarrels and loose talk. Loose talk among the devas is not good. <laughs> then the elder Visaka said, if my living here makes you live at peace, that is good. And so he stayed there another four months. And then again, after that, he thought of leaving. And again, the deva was weeping as before. And so the elders lived on there and stayed there. And it was there that he attained Nibbana. So that's one way that one is dear to non-human beings. So the next two blessings deal with protection. It says that one is protected by the devas and that external dangers will not harm one. And it's not required that we believe in celestial beings and devas, but we can still see how metta can serve us as a protection. And it doesn't mean that nothing bad will ever happen to us. The changes, what are called the vicissitudes of life are in great part beyond our control, these conditions, four-worldly conditions of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. But the protection comes from how we hold all of the changes, all that life brings, how we relate to it. And the more that we manifest love and care and kindness in the world, the more spaciousness and ease we have to draw on that we can bring to bear with the changes that life brings us. And this is a great protect, protection for us when our hearts and minds are open and spacious and at ease, we're able to hold all of these changes with, with much more balance and ease. It's said that one's mind is serene and easily concentrated, the eighth benefit. And we can see how feelings of love and goodwill lead to greater peace of mind. And this leads to a greater sense of connection to life, where we're not depending on the circumstances of life so much for our happiness. And out of this, we have greater access to serenity and joy and happiness. And these are the proximate causes for concentration to arise. And with concentration, we're able to gather energy that gets dispersed through fear and anger and worry. And we can gather, use this reclaimed energy for our benefit, for healing and for liberation. It's said that one's face will be radiant and serene. This points to the way that, that an inner beauty can shine forth 
And just our interstate shows on our face and in our body, just in the same way that when someone's angry, you can see it on their face and their, in their body language. And so too, in the same way as an interstate of ease and happiness shows. And, and I think of the Dalai Lama as such a beautiful example of someone who seems to exemplify this quality. You know, we see his picture and it's, we just love to see him. People who have no idea who he is are drawn to that quality in him, I think. We may know others who exemplify this for us. It's said that one dies peacefully, one dies in an unconfused way, it's another benefit. And we can see how habitual ways that we have of thinking and acting in our life will tend to be what's present at the time of our death. And so if we spent our life feeling separate and alienated from others, if we've cultivated states like fear and anger, if we've given away to desire and ill will a lot, then these states might tend to be, well, tend to be present at the time of our death in our minds and hearts. But if our minds and hearts are peaceful and inclined towards love and well-wishing, then this is likely to be the way we are when we die. And the final benefit is said, one is reborn in higher realms. And so whether or not we, the concept of rebirth is particularly meaningful or other realms, other planes, we can see how this, this functions just in our moment to moment experience. In a way you could say we're reborn into each moment. And depending on our mental, mental state, it could be into a deva realm, a, a heavenly realm, or a hell realm. I think it's important to, mo- to bear in mind with practices like metta that, that it's like any meditative practice, it's a, it's a practice of purification. And so at times our experience may not feel much like loving kindness and a lot of stuff, really everything is gonna come up when we engage in this kind of practice and some of it can be painful to see, difficult to be with. And it's really important that we don't judge ourselves or the practice when this happens. It's useful to remind ourselves that, that we're planting seeds with this kind of practice by forming these beautiful, powerful intentions in our hearts and minds and that these seeds will sprout and grow in their own time and we can't force them to grow. And so we need to be careful of our expectations or ideas of how, how the practice should look or feel. And it really requires great patience and perseverance and a real letting go of, of expectations. I think it's also really important to remind ourselves that metta isn't something that we either create by repeating phrases and thinking nice thoughts or that it's something that exists outside of ourselves and that we manage to, to get to acquire it and, and then hold on to it. 
And what we do with this practice is we highlight and cultivate something that already exists within each of us. And we shine a light on this natural, beautiful capacity of the heart. There's another beautiful quality of mind that we often connect with that comes up when we do loving kindness practice, and that's the quality of forgiveness. Forgiveness means letting go of, of the suffering that comes from holding on with anger and resentment. You know, we can find ourselves living with these grudges and resentments, but it's possible to live in the present without holding on to these things. And forgiveness doesn't mean that we can condone unskillful actions but it's about letting go of negative emotions and negative perceptions that are associated with unskillful actions. Because when we hold on to past hurts, then we're letting the past dictate who we are in the present. And there's a real loss of, of personal power when this happens. And we can tend to forget sometimes that how we feel ultimately doesn't depend on outer conditions. It's it really, it's up to us ultimately how we feel. And we can make a choice whether or not we want to hold on to painful events from the past, or we can choose to let them go by not feeding them through resentment and anger. And by practicing forgiveness, we can actually intentionally do a forgiveness kind of practice. And we can't change what happened there may be deep hurts and wounds. We can't change that, but we can choose how we live in the present, how we want to live now. And there's a beautiful practice of asking for and extending forgiveness that, that happens a lot in Buddhist monasteries, nunneries. At, often it's at the end of a period of, of a retreat period, and always when one is taking leave, when you're leaving a place, there's always this extending, asking for an extending forgiveness that one does. And we can, we might even bring this, we might begin our, some of our meditation periods with these reflections. If I have harmed anyone by thought, by word, by action, I ask for forgiveness and I freely forgive anyone who has harmed me. And it can take a while for this practice to bear fruit. You know, we can't expect instant results just because we've decided that it's a good idea to do this. You know, again, it's this, this idea of planting seeds, but having this aspiration to forgive is a crucial first step on this path. The other night, Joseph mentioned this this teaching is kind of simple and obvious, but it has really powerful and far-reaching consequences in our lives. It's, the Buddha said, that which one frequently thinks about and reflects upon becomes the inclination of the mind. And we can see how this works so easily. 
you know, the way we think and the way habits are formed, habitual ways of thinking are formed. Sometimes I think we feel as though we don't have any choice and that our thoughts and then our reactions to, to them are just unavoidable. They're given somehow, but we do have choice here and we can pay attention and intentionally choose, at least to some extent, what we choose to think about and reflect on. And so if we incline the mind to thoughts of forgiveness and to care and well-wishing, to metta, then this becomes more and more the inclination of our mind. I think one of, there's a one beautiful expression of metta, of loving kindness. At least I, I see it this way is in the cultivation of what's called bodhicitta. Bodhicitta, literally translated, would be the awakened mind or the awakened heart. And usually bodhicitta, on the, on the relative level, it's, it's manifest, it's seen as compassion. In some traditions, it's expressed in the taking of bodhisattva vows, this, the vows. Uh, Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. We could say compassion is the heart of love, this quality of metta turned specifically towards suffering say it's the response of love in the face of suffering in the world. But the fundamental movement of the heart is the same. It's this wish for the welfare and happiness of beings. And on a more ultimate level, bodhicitta, this awakened mind, this is the empty, aware nature of the mind itself, free of any concept of self and other. And we can see love and compassion as, as an expression in the world of, this, of the deepest possible understanding of the ultimate realization of, of emptiness in this way. And so for me, in this simplest sense, I would see bodhicitta as reflecting and understanding that our happiness and the happiness of others is, is on a fundamental, it's one and the same thing. These things aren't, they're not different. They're not separate ultimately, fundamentally. So we may or may not choose to take bodhisattva vows. This might not be meaningful to us, but we can still hold some aspect of this understanding in mind and approach our practice with this motivation that's born of love and of care and compassion that we awaken, that we Realize liberation for the benefit of all beings. A beautiful way to expand our practice beyond our own, what sometimes seems like our own small, limited world. At the beginning of my meditation periods, and, and at various times during the day, especially maybe when I'm on retreat, but not only then, 
I bring this aspiration to mind. I say these words in my mind. May my life and practice be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. And when I first began doing this, I would notice this attitude in my mind that was a little bit dismissive of this aspiration. It was like a a little voice saying, yeah, right, you know, who are you kidding? Something like that, as if this could ever really be possible that my life and my practice could be in service to and for the benefit of all beings. But I'd just go ahead and do it anyway. I would make this aspiration. And over time, I've noticed a shift and this little niggling little voice has quieted down a lot. And I don't believe it so much. It's the voice of Mara, not the voice of wisdom. And there's been a subtle and and really profound shift where this aspiration has become a really powerful and, and very essential understanding for me. It's a real motivation for my practice. So I want to close by reading a few lines from Shantideva that I find very beautiful and inspiring. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings poor and destitute, may I become a treasure ever plentiful and lie before them closely in their reach, a varied source of all they might need. My body thus and all my goods besides and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. Like the earth and the pervading elements, enduring like the sky itself endures. For boundless multitudes of living beings, may I be their ground and sustenance. Thus for everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So we'll sit quietly for a couple of moments and then I'll ring the bell and we'll do the sharing of merit chant.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.